and schedule and get you all out in time for whatever sports team you're going to watch this afternoon. Greg? What's that? To you? Okay, when I'm done? Okay. Thanks. Well, I uh, get the privilege of introducing my son this morning. And uh, first of all, I just want to say it's so... It's always uh, so emotional and wonderful for me to, to just be back in Mansfield. I was baptized in water in that pond in the spring of 1975, and uh, I think I was around 18 years old at the time. So, And it's great to worship with some people my own age. So <laughs> in, in uh, Dayton, we only have, uh, out of about 90 people, we only have about 10 people that are over 35 years old. So... It's, uh, it's nice to, uh, to be with some guys that are at least pushing 50, let's just say. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, well, we'll just leave it there. And, uh, you can. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, of course, uh, Ray and, and uh, Rick and uh, Ned Berube played a big part in this, but in, in 2003... Uh, we just really needed a team to help us, and Ned really gave me the idea that, you know, you have your team, the, those teenagers that you have, and pour, start pouring into them. And it took us, uh, you know, Jason Hale, I'm going to introduce him real quick. He's one of our elders, and he's our administrative pastor, and happens to, uh, for the last eight years, has been my son-in-law. Uh, Stephen Leopold, who's uh, recently gone on staff with us and been with us for three or four years, and uh, then John. But we get, we got serious about raising up Jason and John uh, in 2003, and because of their age, Jason was 18 at the time, John was 16. Uh, it took uh, it took about seven years, to eight years, and then uh, and Rick really helped us with that process. But we ordained them into eldership, uh, and I which totally blew my mind because I sort of had it in my mind that you had to be at least 30 to be an elder. And they were 24 and 22 respectively, but that's who we had. You know, we didn't. Uh, so that, um, and it's been one of the greatest joys of my life has been to serve with my own son. Uh, I had a brother named John Paul who the Lord took home, and that was part of my coming to Christ. And so I just wanted a son named John Paul, and God gave me a son named John Paul. And... Uh, I'll never forget the first night that uh, he he would come home from work when he was in high school at 11, 12, 1 in the morning because he, he worked building computers and so forth. And we would I would stay up at night and chat with him for a while. And I'll never forget the first night he started sharing insights from Scripture with me that were beyond my understanding. And I was like, wow. And I realized that this is what you know, I had prayed for all my life. It, I was actually so shallow for a second, I was like, wait a minute, God, I've been studying for 30 years, and he's been serious for two years, and he sees stuff I don't see. That's not... And then I was like, wow, how shallow can I be? <laughs> so I immediately repented of that and just thanked God for answering our prayers. But John has become the teaching pastor at our church, and he just brings a lot of wisdom to the table, and it's been, uh, it's been a real joy to make the transition to submitting to my own kids, <laughs> and uh, and having and and it's been it's been very easy transition. It's been very workable, but I'm just so proud that, uh, of all the wisdom that those two guys bring to us. And Lord Jesus, we just thank you for for John, and we thank you for all the brothers and sisters here. And we pray by your Holy Spirit, you would come and illuminate our minds change and motivate our hearts 
rebirth Christ in us again and again and help us uh, to keep Christ the center of all things. And we pray that uh, you would anoint John to open our eyes to uh, what it means to begin well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is for Rick. Are we good? The mic. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Honor to be able to address you. I, I believe the first time I was here at Mansfield was about 12 to 14 years ago. I'm very fuzzy on the dates, and so it's it's wonderful. It's it, I really consider it an honor to even be able to address you. Um, so many of you I've known for about a decade or, or a little bit more than that, and uh, I look up to you in such high regard. The ARC has really given quite a lot to Grace Christian Fellowship down in Dayton. For many, many years, we were a very small church, and you've sowed into us for, for, for years, and uh, both not only our church, but also our family. Uh, both Ray and Rick, as well as Ned, uh, have, and, and now Tom, have, have really come alongside my father and the other leaders at our church and uh, really poured into us when, when we had really nothing to give or nothing to contribute financially. And so your, your work in that is now bearing fruit. For, for years, we were around 20 people. And uh, numbers are not a, a primary means of, of measuring growth, but they are an appropriate consideration in the fact that God is glorified that it used to be 20 people who were coming and worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness, and now 80 to 90 people weekly are, are beginning to attend. And it's not just numerical growth. There's a lot of people who come, and they've only come for a year or two, and we're just now getting to know them. But we have a number of people who are dedicated believers. They're disciples who are adding on to the foundation of Christ in a quality way. And uh, they've been with us now. We have a, about 40 to 50 who've been with us, plus five years. And so it's just a, a wonderful work of God's grace. So uh, thank you for the introduction. I, um, I was asked by Rick to talk about the beginning of discipleship, that is, the formation of leaders who begin well. And at Grace Christian Fellowship, for the last decade, we've endeavored to recover three specific elements regarding the means of God's grace. And when I say the means of God's grace, I simply just mean avenues by which God grace, God's grace mediates to us or comes to us. And those three specific elements are really interrelated tools. And those interrelated tools make disciples of the kingdom. And those chiefly are the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the Catholic community of his body, that is the church, and the infallible rule of faith in all matters of life, the scriptures. We consider these, as my father likes to, to discuss them, as three legs of a, of a stool. Without one of the legs, the stool will fall over. Without two of the legs, you have just a pole. <laughs> It, it's not very helpful. Uh, ultimately, these three things are, are tools that interrelate, and they are not disjoint, but work together. They go hand in hand. And so in the formation of the Christian community in Dayton, we desire that, to bear fruit that remains. Therefore, we've given serious consideration to each of these elements, how they both relate together and how there are significant errors in the, body of Christ, in the larger body of Christ in the cultural uh, Christianity, which we hope to address by focusing on these elements. Again, the work of the Spirit, the work of the church or the importance of the church, and the importance of the Scriptures. And so, although each of these elements are in absolutely indispensable, I'm going to spend the majority of my time addressing the issues that we've had to recover the most, namely the work of the Spirit and the Scriptures. Uh, although each of them have their own problems and challenges. 
So every Christian community tends to emphasize certain elements while diminishing others. We all know of churches that have wonderful uh, aspects regarding the the Holy Spirit's work and ministry, and, and sometimes the tendency is to neglect or downplay the importance and role of the Scriptures. And I I believe that they go hand in hand and that having a right balance establishes not only a healthy church, but healthy Christians. And so a right balance in doctrine and practice contributes to longevity, and that really is the goal. We want to start well, and we want people who don't burn out or flame out. That is is absolutely the goal. I don't think that Christ is honored by, uh, by the church when we, you know, leave a waylaid uh, group of Christians strewn about on the backside of the camp as we progress forward. We want to uh, come alongside our, our Christian brothers and sisters and help give them a great foundation. Of course, that foundation is Christ, but as I discussed earlier, the way that Christ comes to us is through the Spirit, the Church, and the Scriptures. And so before we examine each in detail, I want to discuss the end for which we make disciples. Christ has all authority now, and so he commissions us to disciple the nations and teach them to observe everything that he commands. And that includes the Old and New Testament. Now, by that, I'm not saying that the law is still in effect today or that you must be justified by keeping the law. That's not at all what I'm speaking about. What I'm speaking about is that the Old Testament has something to tell us about how we ought to believe as Christians. Uh, We'll get into that at at the tail end of the discussion. So, Christ, in indicating that we must go into every nation and teach them to observe all that he commands, by that phrase, he indicates that disciples do not immediately know what they must prioritize in their Christian walk. When people come into the church, they often have a cultural understanding of Christianity. They have words and phrases that they believe to be important or believe to be an indication of how God operates. We've all heard the caricature, for example, God helps those who help themselves. And, and these are the sorts of ideas that new Christians have coming into the church. Now, that one might be a little bit silly, but it illustrates the point. So disciples must be taught to appreciate and utilize these three means of grace in order that they might bring Christ to bear in every sphere of life, in every aspect of life. Christ is king and Lord over all, or Christ is king and Lord not at all. And so, additionally, they must be shown how these work together. As we've discussed quite briefly, they go hand in hand. And as we look at each element, I want to show you how a right understanding of the other two means of grace help that particular mean. First, I want to discuss the person and work of the Holy Spirit in a church. I want to discuss it in two elements. First, employing the charismatic gifts in the body of Christ. And then second, the Spirit's anointing in preaching and ministry. In every stage of redemptive history, God has operated through his Spirit to form a people for himself. He was operating at the beginning of creation with the Spirit hovering over the waters. He came in the cool of the day to walk and talk with Adam and Eve. He formed a people leading them out of the Exodus by a cloud and fire. And so his spirit is the agent and the application of his grace and the agent by which he progresses history forward. This, this wonderful Holy Spirit accomplishes regeneration, works sanctification, and produces effectiveness in ministry for Christ's disciples. So the gifts and calling of the Holy Spirit, which are apportioned in the ascension of Christ and mediated by the Spirit, are the functional lifeblood of the church and her ministers. 
Without the Holy Spirit, the church cannot exist, and the church cannot interpret the scriptures rightly. So in discussing the charismatic gifts, uh, many of you were alive at a time which I uh, somewhat envy, the charismatic renewal of the 1960s and 70s. I, I, wonder, I, I remember hearing glory stories from those days, and uh, I'm convinced that, that, that there was something, there was a deposit given by God in that time that we ought to steward and maintain. And so many churches throughout the world have built on the Pentecostal renewal of the prior century as well as the charismatic movement, and they've built on this and have experienced great growth uh, in every country in the world. There are, there are people in South, uh, South America and Africa who are growing uh, quite amazingly, and it, what's interesting about the, the transformation of those societies is how large a percentage uh, are Pentecostal or charismatic churches. And it's, it's, an, interesting, um, it's an interesting phenomenon. One, one of the books that I've researched uh, is Philip Jenkins, the, uh, the Coming World Revival. And that book is, is an absolute wonderful uh, detailed history of that, uh, that movement. And so in the, in the broader American evangelical church, there has been a functional neglect of the Holy Spirit's work in glory, such that he's largely absent from our teaching and preaching. We've all heard 10-part series on the person and work and glory of Christ, but when have we heard multiple sermons in a row concerning the Holy Spirit? And I would, I would have to say that this is an indication of a neglect. And so, in fact, many of the Reformed churches have completely rejected the renewal, seeking to distance themselves from what might be called, quote-unquote, charismania. And we all have heard the, the, the horror stories. While these errors might uh, admit, admittedly exist, my proposition is that perhaps it might be an overreaction to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No matter the contemporary influences at work in our day, Christians are called, they're commanded, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And that earnestly desiring has to manifest in a church. So my question is, what does this look like in our churches? How are we giving space for the Christians among us to earnestly desire the gifts? I believe this functional neglect might actually be based in a deeper issue of apathy concerning the Holy Spirit, and that apathy can only be addressed by the church and the scriptures being brought to bear. So how can we, as the Nicene Creed teaches us, worship and glorify the Spirit if we are largely ignorant of his gifts and rarely mention him in our preaching? One chief means by which we might recover this great heritage is through a deep engagement with the scriptures. My anecdotal evidence of the fact that charismatic churches are growing around the world is not an, a primary argument. That's something that might come alongside after the fact. The scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, speak of the glory of the Holy Spirit. And so a sympathetic reading, not a critical reading, of both early and contemporary church history might help us to gain perspective when we approach the scriptures. That is to say, when you approach the scriptures concerning the work and gifting of the Holy Spirit, you come with notions or preconceived ideas, presuppositions that you hold, which absolutely color your understanding and interpretation of those passages. And so my, my appeal is that we might look at, if we do believe that the church is one, and, and she absolutely is, then you might, abs you might look at those scriptures afresh. Prophecy, healing, tongues, and, and deliverance from evil spirits are all attested to in the writings of the early church fathers, such as Justin Martyr, 
Irenaeus, Novatian, Tertullian, and even Augustine himself. Many uh, what might be called cessationists appeal to Augustine, who's a wonderful theologian, and they say that he uh, indicates through his history with the church that the gifts had ceased. But they don't understand that he actually wrote a book at the later part of his life it called Retractions, in which he admits that he was in error about this. And as he himself began to teach about healing in his own church that he oversaw, he saw a massive healing movement take place in that day. Likewise, not only the early church fathers, but every age in the church bears witness to these things. I want to just briefly mention one of them, which is near and dear to my heart. The history of the Scottish Presbyterians is filled with the testimony of churchmen such as John Knox and Samuel Rutherford. These are people who we would consider high church Calvinists. They would be pretty much inaccessible to most of us if we were to pick up their writings. Uh, Samuel Rutherford wrote a book called Lex Rex, which is a scriptural treatment of the doctrine of political government from the scriptures. That's not an easy subject to get into. That's not Reader's Digest. And so it comes as a shock then when we hear that these men actually had great testimonies. The writings of a man named John Howey, who was the biographer of the Scottish church, uh, he was the moderator. Uh, he speaks of a man named Robert Bruce, who was the moderator of the Westminster Assembly in 1588. If you're not familiar with the Scottish Presbyterians, they're, they're the, the element of the church that gave birth to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, Samuel Rutherford was one of the people who was actually writing uh, parts of the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. He was at the General Assembly, which wrote it down and, and then transmitted it. That is the Confession of Faith, which then the London Baptist Confession, which is probably more familiar to us, uh, was then founded on a few decades later. Uh, John Howey, writing concerning Robert Bruce in 1588, says that Robert Bruce was also a man who had somewhat of the spirit of discerning future events and did prophetically speak of things that afterward came to pass. Yea, and there were those who passed all recovery with epileptic disease or failing, uh, falling sickness were brought to him and were, after prayer by him in their behalf, fully restored from that malady. This may seem strange, but it is true, for he was such a wrestler with God and had more than ordinary familiarity with him. One of the things that if you, I would encourage you to look at John Howey's book, The Scots Worthies, which is a chronicle of, of churchmen from the Scottish Presbyterian Church for a period of around 200 years, many of whom John Howey knew personally. Some of them were in the prior generations to him. But each story, story after story, is filled with absolute wonder and glory concerning not only the work of the Spirit, but how these uh, pastors and theologians were dedicated to the doctrines of Christ. Uh, Howey can, uh, records the experience of, of Samuel Rutherford as prophesying two weeks before the very hour of his passing. And as the Scottish Presbyterian ministers came around side him, his brothers in the faith, they were, he was telling them the glories that he perceived to be uh, immediately past the veil. And he was uh, telling forth the glory of Christ even in this uh, time of his, his death, a terrible, uh, horrendous death. Uh, as he, you know, succumbed to the weight of, I think, uh, um, consumption or tuberculosis, I think. And so, though the Scripture itself is sufficient to make a case for the continuing activity of the Spirit, and I believe it is, though it is sufficient, uh, 
might not we be hindered by our expectations and thus be limiting the scripture in light of our experience? But if the church is one, as I mentioned, and it surely is one, it should not surprise us in the least to see the Holy Spirit's activity in the life of the church in diverse centuries and contexts. It is not the case that the gifts of the Spirit are only applicable to countries that uh, continue to believe in spiritual things. If Christ cast out demons, what are we doing if we don't cast out demons? Where did the demons go? So, additionally, in, in, work, in uh, recovering the gifts of the Spirit for today, I also want to discuss the Spirit's anointing and preaching and ministry. So likewise, in addition to recovering the work of the Spirit, ought we not to pursue... Thank you. Ought we not to pursue the anointing of the Spirit in our preaching and ministry such that we, he would be delighted to bear fruit through the preaching of the gospel? Sermons that are rich with scriptural content but devoid of the Spirit's anointing simply miss the goal. It's not that they are necessarily worse, it's just that it's not all that we might bring to bear. So at the same time, it is, it is insufficient to have the gifting of the Spirit apart from the graces of the Spirit operating within the preacher. These emphases, although in our modern context we might know of many uh, arguments to the contrary, examples to the contrary, these two emphases, the gifting of the Spirit and the graces of the Spirit operating in the minister, are not opposed to each other. They go hand in hand. Tim Keller in his book on preaching says concerning the operation of the Spirit in ministry that the greatest factor in long-term effectiveness of a Christian minister is how or whether the, gifting of the gift deficient areas in his skill set are mitigated by the strong grace operations in his character. These exact same dynamics are at work whether the, the disciple is a pastor, evangelist, teacher, or parent. One of Keller's main points in that book is that uh, although many consider preaching to be a work that's only done by pastors, people who are sharing the gospel with their neighbors are preaching to them. Parents who raise their children are preaching to them. And so it ought to be the case that we would seek the, the Holy Spirit's anointing in preaching as well. All disciples of Christ ought to be ready to make a defense of the faith, no matter their station in life. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15 to sanctify the Lord as, uh, sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts by being prepared to make a defense for the faith. So disciples in our churches ought to be encouraged to develop robust habits of prayer, not just for the anointing of the Spirit in public demonstrations of power, but also persuasively in order that they might minister effectively. Disciples should be encouraged to pray with their families and households and in their churches for their own spiritual health as well as their ministerial effectiveness. Turning briefly from the Holy Spirit's uh, recovering the work and gifting of the Holy Spirit, I want to discuss... Uh, in two points, the importance of rediscovering the importance of the church or the centrality of the church. Uh, my two concerns here are that there is a crisis in the modern evangelical world of authority in the church. That is, our people come into the church and have a very small view of the church such that they are hindered from receiving all the giftings that Christ means to give them. And also the aspect of renewing worship. First, regarding authority, contemporary views of the church, that is, views of the church that are popular in the culture today, diminish her importance such that some Christians feel that they can simply move from one congregation to the next. I'm looking at a group of pastors, so I don't need to provide any examples. 
They, they not only think that they can move from one congregation to the next, many of them are convinced that they can stop attending altogether. This is absolutely a travesty. New disciples, therefore, as they come into our churches, must be taught to love the church. You don't simply learn how to love the church of your own accord. You must be led there. They ought to be taught to love the church both local and universal, and therefore begin to work for her purity and health, prioritizing a commitment to the gathering of Christ's assembly. Against this low view, the scriptures present a composite picture of the church as the primary agent of transformation in the world. Although we love hearing stories of how, you know, the Holy Spirit will present Christ in a dream to someone in the Muslim world or God will spontaneously do a work of revival, through history, that has not been the means by which God has brought the gospel to new cultures. And so, against this view, the scriptures present a robust view of the church that is a composite picture. Robert Weber, in his book, Ancient Future Faith, shows how these views of the church provide a holistic foundation for ecclesiology and witness as they go hand in hand. That is, our doctrine of the church radically informs our doctrine of missions and how we ought to be at work in the world. Weber says that these four images, the people of God, the new creation, the fellowship of the faith, and the body, describe the connection that exists between Christ victorious over sin and Christ present for redemption in the world. The power of this recovered tradition results in a new commitment to the church as the people of God, a love both for Christ and for the church, and a recognition that Christ and the church cannot be separated from each other, for they are inseparably linked. Many people in our, in our world today believe that really their faith is a matter of Christ and me. In fact, one of the early uh, children's ministries that I was uh, familiar with or attended was called Jesus and Me. And although I, I'm not belittling that, that community, it's, they produce some wonderful dis young disciples, I think that indicates something. Uh, Weber's book was called Ancient Future Faith, and that was, I believe, sorry, Ancient Future Faith. I believe that was brought to us by Ray. Is that correct, Ray? Thank you, Ray. It was a wonderful book. It was actually the book of the year in our church uh, at least once. So, disciples must be shown from the scriptures that their faith can only be lived out in the context of a committed community who they both know and are known by. If you read the epistles of Paul, they don't make sense if you're just on your own. And so our disciples coming in, or our new believers or new leaders coming in, have to be taught these things. Only within that community which they are committed to can long-term ministry be effective, for discipleship is a lifelong endeavor. One of my great concerns with traveling evangelists is that they often come, as we've seen this in Dayton now two or three times, a group will come in, put on a discipleship event, and because the group has not done any work in getting the churches around uh, from the neighborhoods to be a part of the movement, you have these people who initially have some light of Christ through the gospel being preached to them, and then they have no one to talk to, no one to come alongside and help, help them. So this appreciation for the church and her mission in the world is developed simply within the context of a community of Christians demonstrating life together as well as demonstrating how they ought to worship together. And it's to that emphasis I want to turn now. 
Directly connected to a weakened view of the church is a low view of the importance of corporate worship, especially as a formative element in the faith of disciples. We think of church mostly as an information distribution event, but the entire church act, that is, the church service itself, is formative. To a large degree, the American church has adopted the hyper-individualism of the modern era. It's both a cause and a symptom of the church's approach. The church has dispensed with rich liturgies in favor of mass appeal and has done herself a disservice. But church services are not simply to be a combination of a rock concert and a sanctified TED Talk. If you've never seen a TED Talk, I would encourage you to, to look at one. They are the humanist sermons of our day. Perhaps the end result of such a distinction or such a direction is nowhere better seen than with the emergence of online-only churches. Again, if you're not familiar with this phenomenon, I would encourage you to, to speak with your young people and ask them if any of their friends don't go to a real church or a brick-and-mortar church, but have begun to fellowship with the body of Christ only through online presence. I would have to say that, and speaking humbly, I would say that that is a catastrophe. And, and it is absolutely contrary to not only the incarnational theology of Jesus Christ, but also the writings of Paul in that he often says, I long to come to you, or I wish to send Timothy to you. It's absolutely vital that we disciple people out of these things, and leaders must be able to speak to these sorts of things because they are very serious issues within the larger Christian, uh, Christian culture. Disciples ought to be formed by the rich traditions and practices of the historic church. Now, by saying this, I'm not uh, uh, advocating that you move to sacerdotalism or some dead formalism of tradition that's only learned by rote, that is only learned by meaningless habitual uh, repetition, but rather that there is a rich tradition within the church and these include hymnody, the public reading of scripture, the recitation of creeds, the learning of confessions and catechisms, and the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist, or that is communion. This pattern of weekly covenantal renewal worship provides a context such that Christ's presence and influence are brought to bear in every stage of life. I was uh, graced by God to be a friend of, uh, of mine. Had, uh, she had been pregnant and uh, she had gone through a very tough pregnancy, and she was um, very uh, she was very troubled by the the detail, the just the severity of her pregnancy and and the delivery. And I remember I was uh, communicating with with her, but she wrote on her blog concerning how she was received by the church. In her church tradition, there is a day by which new mothers are prayed for publicly as part of the service as they return back to the church. It used to be called the churching of, of mothers. That is, uh, it, was a, it was a practice that the church had done reading uh, or making a, a, an analogy from the Old Testament. But one of the things that, was, that touched her quite deeply was the fact that in the middle of the church service, there was part of the prayer that was said over her during the service addressed the difficulty of bringing new life into the world. And so one of the positive effects is, in a very real way, the church, by taking time in the service to highlight a work of God's grace in bringing forth new life, even though it is troubling and difficult for her, was deeply transformative. She said that it was, the, it was the one point in the pregnancy that she knew that Christ was actually with her. Not in that she had, you know, removed her faith during the pregnancy, but that it was highlighted in a special way. 
And so these patterns of worship, recovering great and rich traditions from the church, help to show that every aspect of not only a person's life, but also time itself belongs to Christ. One of these great traditions is the church calendar, which is, is absolutely wonderful. As we've begun to practice that over the last three or four years in our uh, sermon focus as well as our scriptures, we've seen Christians who begin to understand the significance of not only Christmas and Easter, but also the other holidays of the church as helping to shape that Christ is Lord over time, just as much as he is Lord over our souls. And so to a large degree, these practices of the church establish a context for the healthy formation of, disciple, of disciples. Peter Lightheart in his book, The Kingdom and the Power, describes the effect of a life that is centered around the table. He says that just as Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of the tree of life in the garden to empower them both for work and worship, so also the Christian is empowered for his week's work by the food and the drink at the Lord's Supper. Once we have been admitted to the sanctuary and feasted on the heavenly bread and wine, once we have heard the king's commandments repeated, he sends us back out again to work and to worship in the world. The point that Lightheart's trying to bring out there is that uh, high, a high view of the importance of worship establishes a rhythm in disciples that they see worship not as something we do on the weekends, but rather the very start and beginning of their entire week. So from not only recovering the Holy Spirit and also the, the importance of the church, I want to now turn to the final element, which is adopting an apostolic hermeneutic or reading of the Scripture. And I want to talk about two elements again, recovering the importance of the Old Testament and then finally learning how to read with the whole Bible in mind. And some of these might seem a little bit... Um, obscure to you, so I actually, at the end of this, I want to give an, an example of the type of approach that I'm discussing. Because all Scripture is profitable for instruction, disciples must learn and therefore be able to teach from the entire Bible. Paul tells Timothy this, that all Scripture is, uh, is to be used for instruction and reproof. And if all Scripture is to be used for instruction and reproof, then that necessarily means the Old Testament. Near the end of his letter to the Romans, Paul directs the church to bolster their perseverance and love for one another by returning not to the New Testament, for it had not yet been canonized and distributed to the churches, but to the Old Testament scriptures. Paul says in Romans 15 verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. How strange this must seem to us today. Think about this in, in the context of your own life, but also the life of people in your church. If, if a New Testament Christian or, or a Christian today was to consider where they might go in the Scriptures for encouragement, most of us would probably turn to the epistles of Paul or potentially some of the Psalms. But most likely the New Testament would be where we would go. I believe that the modern church is almost, ignorant, almost totally ignorant of the importance of the New Testament scriptures. And by saying that, I'm not attempting to malign the body of Christ. The, the, the body of Christ is the bride of Christ, and, and he loves her and washes her with the word, and he washes her with the entire word. This ignorance is the result of generations of neglect. It is not simply something that we got to overnight, and therefore we can't recover overnight. This ignorance is not a matter of personal preference alone. It is not up to you to determine whether or not the scriptures are to be brought to bear in your church. 
This is something that I've had to, to deeply repent over as I looked over the first five years of my sermons and saw nothing from anything before Matthew. This ignorance is not a matter of personal pre- preference, but in fact it actually prevents us from seeing the glory of Christ in history. The writers of the New Testament frequently and intentionally both invoke and allude to the Old Testament to provide context to the reader. Without understanding much of the Old Testament, therefore, both in the specific details and manners of speech, we miss almost all of what the, what the apostles intend to say, and therefore are blind to significant aspects of the glory and person and work of, of Jesus Christ in history. Douglas Wilson, in, in the opening of his commentary on the book of Hebrews, expresses the danger here. He says that far too many quote-unquote New Testament Christians think that the New Testament is a course that has no prerequisites, when in fact, jumping into the New Testament studies without Old Testament grounding is like going straight from kindergarten to Newtonian physics. Either the student will be overwhelmed or he will be extraordinarily diligent and hardworking, making sense out of it for himself, but with the result being an exotic creation of his own. I would dare say that that is is what we see at work in in the body of Christ at large. There there is such a uh, a diverse uh, discontinuity from from branch to branch of what the Old Testament is about, and and I think that's because we've largely neglected a historic reading of the of the New Testament. So while Hebrews, the book that Douglas Wilson was commenting on, as well as Rev- Revelation, provide especially clear examples, and we might immediately think of all the different things we don't yet understand in those books, uh, although they provide especially clear examples, almost every book in the New Testament makes frequent allusion to and reference of the Old Testament scriptures. For example, just in the introduction of his gospel, John explicitly refers to the creation account, Jacob's ladder at Bethel, the tabernacle of Moses, the giving of the law at Sinai, the entrance into the land, the promised land that that Joshua uh, accomplished, and also the books of Proverbs, Malachi, and Isaiah. And that's just in the introduction of John's gospel. Of course, the rest of his gospel builds on and expands those themes, as well as brings in many diverse uh, allusions and references. So how can we understand the full message of John and therefore Jesus without understanding these themes? Cultivating deep context of the scriptures, therefore, will yield rich dividends and uncover precious gems which otherwise would be unreachable. So my, my aim in, in forming disciples at, at Grace Christian as well as uh, my encouragement to you is that we might learn how to read the whole Bible in, in one setting. And by that, I'm not saying that you read from page to page, but rather that as you approach any given scripture, you have the larger context of the single book in which it is uh, placed in mind. That is, when we approach Matthew, we don't approach Matthew just on Matthew's terms. We don't approach Matthew just on Matthew's etymology and word choice and, and references. We approach Matthew in the context of the entire Bible. Because this tendency, that is the tendency to neglect the Old Testament, is at work within the larger cultural Christianity, disciples must be encouraged to cultivate a hunger for the Old Testament. And I think that this hunger is cultivated simply by reading it. And as they read it, they ought to be trained to notice the themes, motifs, shadows, and types as they go. 
As they return to the New Testament then, after reading the Old Testament, coming back to the New, they should look for parallels and make connections where possible, testing their understanding against commentaries and fellow Christians, and ultimately at work in preaching and teaching in the body of Christ. No theology is worth keeping if it does not actually bear fruit. And where can we test bearing fruit of a theology better than in the context of a church? Though a literary approach is is susceptible to abuse, and we might be able to imagine a number of different examples here, it is no more so than any other form of reading. Typological readings, or readings that consider shadows and types in the Old Testament, do not necessarily obscure or subvert the full meaning of the text. It is not as if John is writing his gospel without context. He directly invokes that context, and so a typological reading is not distracting from John's meaning, but is actually bringing it to bear. To a great degree, therefore, in reading the Scriptures, no moral implications or moral directives from the Scriptures could even be made without allegorizing or interpreting metaphor. For example, we emulate the faith of Abraham, but God doesn't command us to sacrifice our children on mountains. It's a metaphor. Likewise, when Christ tells a disciple to take up his cross and bear it, he's not telling them to go to Home Depot to buy two-by-fours and screw them together and carry them around. It is, again, a metaphor. This is not to, to belie or, or diminish what would, be li- what would be called literal readings of the Scripture or readings of the Scripture that treat them as historically accurate, but it actually is coming to understand Scripture as literature. So avoiding allegory is obviously impossible. We can't ignore allegory, but, but the idea of bringing in a literary reading of the Scripture is not license to just free associate on the text. It is not as if we are beatnik poets who take John as a launching point from which we then come up with our own social theories. N.T. Wright, in his work on Paul in a Fresh Perspective, describes the mindset that is necessary for this approach. If you've ever heard the work of any of the famous jazz musicians, you might have that in mind as you hear what he has to say. Wright says in in his uh, description of the apostolic hermeneutic, he says that no musician would ever suppose that improvising means playing out of tune or out of time. On the contrary, it means knowing extremely well where one is in the implicit structure, listening intently to the other players so that what we do, we do together, however spontaneously, and that it makes a complete and composite whole. Some fear that typological readings and poetic readings open a backdoor to liberalism, and although this fear is warranted, it has been the case that liberal theologians have abused the scripture through allegory, through metaphor, it is not necessarily the case that this, uh, that this take place in our readings, and this fear is absolutely and easily guarded against. A strident Protestant commitment to sola scriptura, that is the doctrine of the faith which describes that uh, our faith is based upon the scriptures and the scriptures alone, that Protestant commitment, a a robust commitment, uh, allows one to read the scriptures using the literary themes within the narrative without sacrificing the doctrine of inerrancy nor limiting the authority of the text. By saying that John is writing in metaphor and using allusions, We do not say that John is condescending or speaking something that is not absolutely true, but rather that he's using it in a way that is rich and deep and must be uh, investigated. By describing a scriptural text as a narrative or an account, we do not ascribe it fictional status. 
In fact, for the many years when I was beginning to discuss these things in both sermons and my uh, discussions with young disciples, I would always use the term historical narrative. That is to emphasize not a narrative as most literary, literary philosophy touches it, saying that this is just a narrative or that doesn't need to be believed or obeyed because it's just narrative. Those, God didn't really command the Israelites to slay the Canaanites because that was just narrative. We are not describing it in that means at all, but rather we are ascribing it rich and deep historical status. We do not accuse the writer of taking poetic license or glossing over historical fact so as to introduce error. By stating that John is making an allusion or a reference to the tabernacle of Moses when discussing the incarnation, we do not construe that John is is lying about the incarnation. Rather, we affirm that God sovereignly superintends within the events themselves or superimposes a larger and wider meaning within the events such that the author, the author of the, of the writing, being duly inspired by the Holy Spirit, faithfully highlights and emphasizes details of the event which otherwise would be totally missed. That is to say, as, as James Jordan references in his uh, book, Through New Eyes, he says that reading in a type, typological fashion or reading with typology in mind proves the sovereignty of God in history. That is, anyone other than God could not bring these themes to bear throughout the various events in the life of redemptive history. So although this method of reading may seem daunting, we fortunately have both apostolic warrant and op- apostolic pattern to draw from. In Philippians 4.9, Paul says that we ought to emulate the things that we see and observe and hear in him. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he expounds on the Exodus, and he identifies Christ as the rock struck by Moses at Meribah, but he says the rock which followed the Israelites through the wilderness. I'm now going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11 as the beginning of our example, and then we're going to go quickly to John 6. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, sorry, were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Though Paul enumerates a few examples in this passage, the cloud, the sea, the food, and the drink, he does not explain them in detail, though he mentions that these things were Christ. He simply makes Christological connections where appropriate and fitting, and by this I mean to indicate where the Holy Spirit and the church throughout the ages have given warrant to. The question is, How does Paul make these connections? He directly connects in this passage the spiritual food and drink that the the Israelites took in the wilderness to the Eucharist in the context of the Corinthian church. 
He connects not only the food, but also the idolatry of the Israelites to the sins that were at work in the Corinthian church. And if you've ever read the Corinthian letter, there were gross and horrific sins going on. The question is not just how did Paul make these connections, but where did Paul learn this technique? That is to say, Paul is using a scriptural technique that we ought to emulate. What scriptures would Paul have appealed to in his defense and in his justification for the reasoning of making these connections between the wilderness and the church? And I believe that we can actually see this exact example in Paul's reasonings by looking at the Gospel of John in John chapter 6. I'm not going to read John chapter 6, but very quickly move through it. And and we're going to be looking at John chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000 in John's Gospel. The feeding of the 5,000 that's captured there is a representation of the Passover exodus narrative through parallelism. That is to say, John is recording the events faithfully, and God has superimposed a structure to the activity of the sign of Christ that he gives in the feeding that directly is able to be connected to and referenced by the exodus. Additionally, in this passage, we hear echoes of Ezra's leading of the law, of the law for the people in the return from exile. And though these elements are fully seen in John chapter 6, other gospels help, out to, uh, help us to round out the picture as well. As we integrate the Old Testament shadows and types here in in, in just a moment, we will see a great number of significant aspects to John's theme which are not immediately present without making the connection. They do not distract from John's goal, but in fact help us to preach the gospel. Near the closing of John's letter, John says that these things were written so that you may believe. And so I believe that John is making an intentional use of these themes, but not only that John is doing it, but that God in Christ was doing it. In the Exodus, Moses takes the people through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. Here, Jesus ascends, uh, sorry, Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd follows. Moses first ascends Sinai with Aaron and the, the elders of Israel, and they do this to feast with God. And here, Christ ascends the mountain with his disciples. It's not immediately clear from the text whether the people also ascend the mountain or if they stay at the base of the mountain. Christ intentionally accomplishes this sign at Passover to indicate or to invoke the meaning of Passover. In verse 4 and verse 6, verse 6, I believe, tells us that Christ knew what he was going to do. Just as Jethro advised Moses to divide up the people and distribute them, placing elders over various groups and sizes, Christ also here divides the people into groups, having them sit down. Christ takes the loaves and the fish, and he blesses them, and he takes them, and as he takes them, he looks up into the heavens. Luke tells us that. John omits it. But the loaves become here a new manna, and the fish become a new quail. Just as Ezra appointed the twelve scribes and the twelve Levites to help the people understand the scriptures, so also Christ distributes the food, not to the people directly, but first to the twelve disciples, who then give the people the food. As soon as they gather the leftovers, the people recognize Christ as the fulfillment of Moses' great prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15. They say that God, uh, uh, Moses said at the time, that God will indeed raise up for you a prophet like unto me from among you, from among the brothers. So my question is this, how do the people know that Christ is the prophet that Moses spoke of? And my answer to that would be, they are making the same connections we are right now. 
that through their understanding of the scriptures, they understood what Christ was doing in the moment. During the time of Moses, the people were required to gather the manna day by day, except on the day before the Sabbath, when they were to gather the extra after the fact. Likewise, after the food is distributed, the disciples gather up the extra pieces and fill 12 baskets full, one for each tribe, and certainly enough to get, in, to get out of the wilderness. Remember, the reason that Christ does this sign is because there's an immediate need in the people that because they are in the wilderness and already hungry, that they would fall in the, in the way getting back into the city. So Christ multiplies more than is required And the reason he does this is because he is going to bring the people into a true Sabbath rest, into a new promised land. And unlike the manna which is consumed as it is eaten, the food that Christ distributes multiplies as it is given away. The food that he makes or the food that he distributes will never run out. Finally, we need to consider the difference between the accounts. Up till now, we have just been making comparisons, but now I want to make some contrasts. Though we've heard the melody, we must also listen to the harmony and the variation. Christ not only does something in order to invoke Moses, but he does something in order to say that he is greater than Moses. Notice how reading with the grain of the Old Testament helps us to see the picture of what Christ is doing. In the, Mos- in the wilderness, Moses does not give the people the food directly, but rather it comes down from heaven. That is to say, it comes down from Yahweh himself. Christ, however, in this account, hands the food himself to his disciples and the people. So Christ is not only a greater Moses, Christ is Yahweh come in the flesh. But more than that, Christ is the bread himself. He is not just giving the food, he himself is the food. So his distribution of the food is also a visual parable of the cross. He later explains this in in the latter uh, half of John 6, in verses 32 through 35. At the, Christ, at, the, at the cross, therefore, Christ does not pay for simply abstract sins. He doesn't pay for theoretical sins, but rather he pays for sins, which in the analogy is the hunger of the people, the need of the people. Without his sacrifice, his people would starve. But as it is, Christ satisfies their hunger and much more. This is deeply applicable for a pastoral concern when our people come to us and they say, can Christ truly forgive me? You can come to this sort of a passage and be able to make that sort of implication. But as it is, Christ satisfies their hunger and much more. And so therefore, this is what we mean when we preach the scriptures. Christ died for you in order to redeem you from your sins. Further, Christ shows that the giving of the bread is a promise of eternal feasting in his presence. Although Moses could not keep that generation from falling in the wilderness, Christ promises to raise to life all who eat this bread, even though they die. And so this here is a contrast to the the Moses account. Incorporating comparisons to the Old Testament almost always helps us preach the gospel better rather than distracting from it. In the feeding of the 5,000, without the contrast to the accounts of Moses, it's hard to see the elements of Christ's divinity, Christ's atonement, and Christ's resurrection. Furthermore, from here, we can see how this naturally leads to the celebration at the table. And so I'm convinced that Paul, although he may not have read John when he was able to to write the Corinthian letter, he certainly hadn't understood the story, and I believe he understands it and refers to it directly. So in conclusion, seeking the, the kingship of Christ in all of life, these three emphases, these means of grace by which disciples must be trained and, and raised up, the word, the spirit, and the church, 
they help to establish disciples on a solid foundation of Christian maturity. Rather than emphasize one means to the neglect of the other, disciples should be shown how they interrelate. In each example here, the Holy Spirit, the Church, and the Word, each of them have been helped or aided by the other two. James Boyce writes concerning the doctrine of the illumination of Scripture in the context of the church, saying that the Reformers, and particularly John Calvin, stressed the way that the objective and written word and the inner supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit work together, the Holy Spirit illuminating the word to God's people. The word, therefore, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit is a closed book. Now, admittedly, what I've just presented, these three elements in, in great detail, Uh, is a very high and lofty calling. And when I discuss these in the forming of disciples as the beginning or starting well, I do not mean that you must obtain true maturity or full maturity in all of these things before you can begin to minister, but rather that these are a trajectory, they are a vector by which a Christian ought to be uh, pointed to in his walk and ministry. Indeed, these approaches, these recovering these approaches, have to be worked out through all of life, and it will take all of life to, to recover them. Moreover, disciples cannot be taught simply without being shown in context. This is one of the things that I deeply appreciate about the ARC, is that uh, by and large we have a commitment to a life and a community together by which we demonstrate the, the faith as much as teach it. Again, Paul's, uh, Paul's teaching in Philippians 4 might be encouraged that we ought to emulate the things that we learned and received and heard and seen in him. Without these tools, therefore, Christian disciples are not prepared for ministry effectiveness nor for spiritual longevity. Likewise, therefore, the current reign of Christ over all things requires that Christians utilize every means of grace that he's given to bring about his lordship in every area. Uh, that's the end of my talk. I think, Rick, you don't want me to leave room for questions now? Okay. Thank you very much.